Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Term limits are about to come off in China. We'll think through what China's president for life means for the world. Samira Ahmed uses her experiences growing up in Batavia to inform her young adult novel. We'll find out about love, hate, and other filters. And one of the lessons that Pyeongchang talked visitors was culinary. We'll reflect on the regional cuisines of Korea. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Since President Mao died, one of the things the Chinese Communist Party has had a healthy respect for was term limits. It's long been rumored that Xi Jinping wants to end term limits in China, and now he's making his move. With me to talk about what President Xi for life means is writer Wen Huang. He's the author of A Death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel, amongst other books. Good to see you, Wen. Good to see you, Jerome. Well, tell, give us a little bit of the historical background here first. Um, after Mao, it seems like there was this move and this consensus idea that 10 years was the limit. Um, how did that happen and why did they throw it off? As you know, that China is a one-party state, and then the Communist Party has absolute power over everything for every company from the uh, Communist Party at the upper level to the lowest, for example, radio station, you always have a it's not the station. lowest when. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. Close Sorry, to the lowest, the, but you know. Close to the highest. The, the, anyway, the, so every company, you have the dual system. For example, you have a station manager, you have a party secretary. The party secretary controls the station manager. And at the upper level, the president is more of a ceremonial position. And the real powerful person is the party secretary, which is Xi Jinping. And in China right now, Xi Jinping controls both the military, he's the head of the military, he's head of the party, and also he's head of the state. And uh, we talked about that last year during the national uh, the, during the party congress, the 19th party congress in November. She has already uh, she already made it very clear that uh, he was going to extend his rule because normal years after his uh, five-year term is over when he starts a new another new five-year term he needs uh, he needs to pick a successor and he didn't do it at the he didn't Congress. do it it was like during the past 30 years that's something brand new and we speculated or we uh, suspected that was he, he was going to extend the rule because the party the Communist Party Constitution does not have a term limit but it 
But the state constitution, the Chinese constitution, does say that the president, even though it's a ceremonial position, it has two term limits. And uh, this position ceremonial was because the party had absolutely over control. And during the Cultural Revolution, Mao completely abolished the, this position. He left vacant for years. He just wanted to be the chairman of the party. That's what always called Chairman Mao, not President Mao, because he was never the president. And after Mao died, people f- felt like he was there forever. He, we, when we were growing up, we felt Mao was the God who never died. Every morning we pray to him. You know, we we it's just like a kid praying to God. And then suddenly he died in 1976. There was a political coup, and then uh, Deng Xiaoping, another party veteran, came to power. He felt that uh, Mao's because there was no term limit, and the one person's there, there's no check uh, of balances, and then. And he brought untold disasters to China. So he in- initiated the changes, saying that all party leaders, you need to have term limits, like 10 year, normally uh, two terms. And then so they made an unwritten rule within the party. If you are the head of the party, you can rule for 10 years. And they made the written rule in the constitution saying the president of the country can only serve two terms. And also, go ahead. I'm sure there are a lot of people in China who remember this history and think, well, that was a good idea. This was not a bad idea to have term limits. And we should stick to that. Yes, that's why uh, his moves has run into a lot of opposition. A lot of people like me who grew up during the Cultural Revolution will have very fresh minds memories of, you know, that that era that when Mao was treated like a god, the personality cult and all that stuff. But uh, right now, uh, the, the situation is uh, Xi Jinping took over. He felt that the collective leadership that was instituted during after Mao's death, meaning there's a Politburo standing committee, you have seven or nine members to rule the country. He felt that that was uh, was very ineffective because these nine members we normally call the scholars call it the collective dictatorship. The seven or nine members there on this committee, rather than coordinating with each other, they subtouch each other. And when she was the vice president, when he was being trained, he witnessed firsthand that how. Uh, paralyzed the president could be during a natural disaster. He couldn't even mobilize the, the military because somebody else is trying to, you know, give you a hard time. So he felt the need to consolidate power. That was his rationale. And also after she took over, he initiated this massive anti-corruption campaign, like thousands of officials are brought down from power. He has made lots of political enemies. And then he is re- actually, a lot of people, they uh, lost their, their interest, they lost their positions. They're waiting for his second term to end. Well, how do you read that? Because a lot of people say he's very effectively uh, vanquished his enemies. And they're he not used, made enemies. They, they, they can't even reconstitute to, to be enemies to him. But uh, institutionally, he used this anti-corruption campaign. It's a very popular move among ordinary people because each time a corrupt official is brought down, they applaud it. But on the other hand, he used this campaign and effectively 
effectively uh, defeat his enemies. Because normal years, like they are uh, all the new leaders, they are effectively controlled by the veteran Communist Party members, the retired officials. He used this campaign to threaten the relatives of family members. And actually, he has now pretty much, that's why we say this move is going to uh, sell through because he has effectively defeated his uh, his enemies. And he has no, as far as we know, he doesn't have any formidable political opponents. And then he wants to send them a message now saying, those you want me to wait for my second term to be over so they can have a comeback. So wait for a little longer. I'm going to be here for a very long time. Of course, he. the other uh, argument is that they feel like uh, the Western countries like the United States, each time you have a policy and then you, for eight years, a new president comes in, President Trump has come in and then overthrown a lot of the stuff that uh, – President Obama did. He says, we need to have a continuation of the policy. And that's their, their argument saying, if I bring, I'll be, I'm here longer, I can make China stronger, just like Putin says, give me 20 years, uh, you will not recognize Russia. And she said, give me 20 years, I'll rejuvenate China, give you a stronger China. But of course, this is very dangerous as well. I'm talking with Wen Huang. He's the author of A Death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel, and we're discussing what's happened with China over the weekend, where uh, the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping are going to do away with term limits in China. What do you think this means for um, surrounding countries and, and the international scene? There are so many authoritarians and budding authoritarians, and China was a place that um, had escaped the negatives of authoritarianism, the excesses that can come when somebody has uh, untrammeled powers, and now they are, they're walking right into that nest. Right. Short term, I think it's like during the past couple of days, you can see even the Western governments or the neighboring countries, the governments, they were muted. They feel like the short term is actually to their benefits because at least they're dealing with a known quantity. And then for the Western companies who are doing business in China or for Western governments, they feel like she's there is a guaranteed stability. If there's any chaos in the in China, the economy collapses, anything, it causes huge uh, this uh, repercussions around the world. So that's why they felt like they felt a, a sense of security. But uh, most uh, analysts like people include me, we feel that uh, it's going to cause more uncertainties because the instability during Mao's era, when you one person in power, you is, there was more power struggle. Every couple of years during the Mao era, you see that one of the successors or somebody is trying to overthrow Mao. They got persecuted, they got killed, they died in a plane crash and all that stuff. And I think that uh, a lot of people... Normally, they want to wait out the second term, but now the only thing they could change his policy is through political coup or through um, assassination efforts. I think in case he is sick or he drops dead, it's causing a lot of instability. And also because of this authoritarian rule, you can tell China is becoming more nationalistic, more militant. I think it's going to cause a lot of uh, problems for the neighboring countries and for the world. Now, on the front of uh, how do you react to something like this and you think it will cause instability, it seems like the, the censorship in China is so strong and uh, the reaction to this on the internet, uh, it's mostly kind of, kind of oblique references and things that you, do, you don't actually get organizing uh, action communication that, that is going to result in change. How do you have a 
<laughs> How do you make a coup in a country that where the lid is on so tight? I think the political elites right now, even though people, uh, ordinary people, they're much more informed in the different social media platforms. Even though the government, since uh, during the past five years, since she. Uh, took power, there's been a lot of this censorship movement. They tried to shut down some media outlets. They use technology to block all kinds of uh, words. For example, uh, two days ago when the party announced that they want to abolish the term limits immediately, and uh, any reference to the two-term, if you type in two-term limits, is uh, you can no longer find it. And somebody compared it to 100 years ago. There was this guy who wants to be the emperor, and then the name of the guy is Yuan Shikai. And now you're typing that guy's name for history uh, lessons or something. You can't find any reference to so, it. So they just erased the idea of the two-term limits in China. Right, and now you don't have this uh, two-term limits. You don't, <laughs> This word don't exist anymore, these two words. But anyway, but despite that, people have all kinds of ways to to climb over the, they call the firewall, and access a lot of information. And also, I think that uh, they come to the fact that, you know, with the this so world interconnected, there is no way you can block this information. And people, ordinary people, especially the rising middle class, they are much better informed than before. I think that uh, he's going to run into a lot of opposition, but I just don't know how well that's going to work. Because uh, uh, a decade ago, when another Chinese president, when it was time for him to leave, he wanted to uh, cling to uh, uh the military power. He didn't want to relinquish his chair of the military central commission. And then there was strong opposition within, and then he uh, felt pressured and he stepped down. But uh, right now, she has total control over the country. And he doesn't, like I said, he doesn't have any formidable political opponents. And all the veteran leaders who, the retired leaders who used to be very powerful, right now they're either too old to say anything, or he is now using the anti-corruption campaign to threaten their family and relatives. And then saying, if you do that, because every, nobody's a clean government. If they want to get you, you can find a lot of the corruption scandals with everything. So this is being very, very effective. How far do you think things will go with Xi's cult of personality idea? He definitely has some Mao reminiscent uh, kind of feelings about him. And I saw some jokes that uh, that uh, the you know the portrait of Mao is being taken down in Tiananmen Square, and we're going to put up Xi Jinping's. Uh, Portrait in Tiananmen Square. Do you think he'd he'd go all cult of personality on us? I think he'd be smart enough not to go all the way because you know he is well versed in the in the Chinese history. Xi Jinping, he, Xi Jinping. But the whole thing is other people down. He is he has created this atmosphere right now. Imagine if you work for him, wouldn't you dare say anything that he doesn't want to hear? It's people. It's underneath there, like. Um, uh, Every couple of months, there will be something like the local officials. They try to put his – during the conference, they try to ask people to bow to his pictures. And then, then he found out and then uh, he had them removed. And then, But I think that he is, even though he is clearly know that uh, the cult personality is going to kill him. But I think that the people underneath him, they are also doing a lot to do that. Uh, yesterday, I read an editorial. He says – 
oh, ever since Mao, uh, people never put any pictures up there. Now people voluntarily put the portraits of President Xi Jinping in their homes during the New Year, as if that this was a voluntary move. You know, it's the will of the people. This is you could tell that uh, you know a lot of people surrounding him. They try to suck up to him so that. But you know, the, with any dictatorship. Uh, with any dictators, all the people around him, he will pick anybody who will, you know, listen to him and who I don't think he knows what's going on after a while. How close do you think he is to creating a, a Vladimir Putin-like model? They they seem to talk about each other as um, in similar ways. Soulmates. And, and Putin really moved out all the oligarchs, the old oligarchs, and moved in his people and he had an anti-corruption purge, you know, practically, and the and in moved his people who don't look uh, like they're not corrupt or anything. They're they're just the they're just his people. But many people say that regardless what Putin does, at least they have uh, election, right? They have every year they have election. China doesn't just have, have election. one. It's not gonna. He's gonna win. He's going to win. But at least the in name they have election. China doesn't even have that in election. I think China is moving there very quickly, and then especially, uh, she is being very tough and internationally. He's just going to emerge like another Putin. But my co-author with uh, the death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel, he is. Um, and he knows China much more than I do. He's been doing this for the past 30 years. But he believes there is also hope. He thinks that now she has uh, consolidated his power. He's secure enough. He might initiate some political reforms. But I just don't know how. I haven't seen any political reforms from any authoritarian state, have you? I think Venezuela, North Korea, people have been talking about that for a long time. It hasn't happened, but I don't know. But he has this uh, video saying that uh, there is still hope that uh, he has heard messages that she wants to be more westernized, but we haven't seen that yet. But at least locally, overseas Chinese and uh, a lot of people on Weibo has have already uh, voice their opposition and then uh, a lot of the overseas community they are launching this campaign to stop this and uh, we just don't know how effective they can uh, they can be uh, what do you think it'll be like in china in 10 years what do you think will be going on i it's hard to imagine since China, every couple of years they change it so fast but i think there was a certain potential uh, not dangerous, but the things that we to be concerned about is first the economy. During the past 30 years, the reason that the Communist Party has strong grip over the country is because the economy was booming. But right now, during the past several years, and then uh, the economy has been either plateaued or has gone down, and uh, there was huge unemployment rate and social unrest. I think that once the economy starts to deteriorate, complete the cycle. And uh, even though the Chinese cap, uh, keeps pumping money into infrastructure to try to create jobs, but uh, there is a point when the housing market collapses or something, and then the Communist Party is going to be causing not only chaos within China, but uh, in the world. But on the other hand, China could just uh, emerge as another Russia, even though it is getting there, right? Yep. Co-author Wen Hong is co-author of the Death in, A Death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about term limits and the end of term limits in China and President Xi Jinping for life. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. 
Samira Ahmed used her experiences growing up in Batavia to inform her young adult novel. We'll find out about love, hate, and other filters after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Love, Hate, and Other Filters is a young adult novel by Samira Ahmed. The main character is a high school senior, Maya Aziz. Her parents are from India. She's the only brown person in her high school, and her life gets turned upside down by a terrorist attack hundreds of miles away. The author, Samira Ahmed, is with me. Thanks for joining me. I have really enjoyed reading the book. Oh, thank you, Jerome. I'm really excited to be here. Now, you're originally from Batavia. And I am. Batavia is the location of the novel. And you got to put a lot of your own experiences into this, I imagine. Well, Batavia is where I grew up, and I this book, in a way, is a little bit of my valentine to growing up there. There were a lot of really great things about it, but no town is perfect, as I show in the novel. And the setting is really a character in the novel. And I'd say that some of my experiences informed a little bit of what is going on on the page, definitely. Tell us more about Maya Aziz and, and who she is and, and what her thing is all about here. Well, you know, Maya is a 17-year-old girl, and she's really a girl like all the other girls. She's this American kid. She has hopes and dreams, ambitions, this passion for filmmaking. But she's also a child of immigrants and an Indian American and a Muslim and the only one in her small town. And that really shapes a lot of her worldview and also shapes the way people look at her. It's kind of a filter that affects the way uh, the world sees her. And interestingly, she's taken up with a camera, and this kind of defies the expectations of her family, and she wants to be a filmmaker, and her family has other ideas. Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of jokes in the Indian American and I think the broader Asian American community about how you can either be a doctor or a lawyer, maybe an engineer. Those are the acceptable um, professions. Yet, you know, obviously India has a, a vibrant filmmaking industry, but I think it's just so much speaks to the idea of immigrants who've come to this country and have literally uprooted, destabilized themselves. They come to America and they're rerouting themselves and they're trying to find that stability and security for their children. And, you know, being a doctor is a very honorable and stable and secure profession. And that's why they kind of are pushing Maya in that direction. And Maya's parents are both dentists. They yes. are in a practice together in Batavia and doing great. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, you know, kind of living their version of the American dream. Um, but Maya has her own dreams. And filmmaking is this passion she has. And the camera is really both the way she sees the world and can edit her world. And it's also something that she can sometimes hide behind. And part of having that camera attached to her all the time is there's an important part of the novel where Maya has to decide, like, you know, I'm going to step out from behind my camera and become the leading lady of my own story. So that camera has a, a dual purpose, I'd say. Do you want to read a little bit of the novel? Just a Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and read just a couple of paragraphs from chapter one of Love, Hate, and Other Filters. Destiny sucks. Sure, it can be all heart-bursting and undeniable and Bollywood dance numbers and meet me at the Empire State Building, except when someone else wants to decide who I'm going to sleep with for the rest of my life. Then, Destiny is a bloodsucker and not the swoony, sparkly vampire kind. 
The night is beautiful, clear and bright with silvery stars, but I'm walking across a noxious parking lot with my parents toward a wedding where a well-meaning auntie will certainly pinch my cheeks like I'm two years old, and a kindly uncle will corner me about my college plans with the inevitable question, pre-med or pre-law? In other words, it's time for me to wear a beauty pageant smile while keeping a very stiff upper lip. It would be helpful if I could grow thicker skin too, armor perhaps, but we're almost at the door. One of the things that Maya and all the other Indian American characters are negotiating, you know, from arranged marriages to expectations, and there's a kind of unique worldview that they all share, these young people. They all understand their spot. Well, I think for kids like Maya and for so many kids in America, life going forward is really about trying to have a foot in two different worlds. The world at home with the background that, that your parents are sort of bringing to you and and that Maya loves. You know, she loves that her um, Indian American culture and she is proudly Muslim. But then also navigating sort of the halls of her pretty much totally white high school and trying to navigate that and, and somehow create a life for herself where the two can exist together in a fluid way. But she's finding she's butting heads with her parents because of those expectations they have on her. But there's also expectations that are put on her from other people and because of uh, of who she is and the, the way they view her. So I think she's, like I said, she's this American girl. And I think she has an experience that really mirrors a lot of kids today. I'm talking with Samira Ahmed about her book, Love, Hate, and Other Filters. It's a young adult novel, and it's your first? It's my debut novel, yes. It's such an interesting topic for these times that we're living in. What are you trying to say to young people who are reading this book? You know, Maya's struggle with both her parents and and society, like I said, is something that I think a lot of kids feel or, um, you know, is mirrored in a lot of people's lives. But I really say that, you know, I wrote this book for every kid out there who sort of is made to feel like they're an other, because I believe so strongly that in America, there is no other, there is only us. And all of these stories of America make up the greatness of our country. And I think it's really important for kids from every walk of life, from every culture, from every background, from every sexual orientation to really be able to see themselves as a hero on the page. You know, Maya is the hero that I created, and I really hope that some kids can see themselves in her, whether they are Indian American or Muslim or children of immigrants. You know, there's a lot of kids who are made to feel like they are another. And I just want them to know that, you know, they are seen and they're known and they are loved and they are America. One of the things that my experiences, of course, in the book is bigotry and all the problems that entails in her life. I think people who read the book and who don't, uh, don't experience those kind of things would get a window into what it's like for a young woman to, to have this kind of thing happen and for a family and for a community. Well, you know, it's really interesting because I was recently at an event close to my hometown and a lot of kids, or they're now adults who I went to school with, said, you know, I never really thought of you as having this experience as being the only Muslim kid and the only Indian kid in our entire high school. I mean, I just thought of you as just like the other kid or my friend. And I said, well, you know, I I get that. That's how you saw it. But for any child who's in that situation, there's no way for them not to realize, you know, that they are the only one. And to feel, even just on a daily basis, some of these sort of even like the microaggressions, that that constant almost burden of having to represent everyone from your culture, everyone from that background. And, you know, it's really, um, it's something that is just very persistent for for lots of kids. And it adds a little bit to the 
to the complexity of just trying to be a you know regular teenager and getting through life. There is a terrorist incident in the book, and it turns everybody's life upside down, and mm-hmm. it creates a, a kind of page-turner quality to the book that I, I, I don't know, I guess I wasn't expecting in the beginning. <laughs> what, what did you want to throw in there? What did you want to really amplify? Part of what I wanted to create in writing this novel was to show a moment in a child's life um, where their world is shattered. And that's something that you can never really be prepared for. And, you know, so many of our kids are, are having that experience today, whether we're we're talking about dreamers, whether we're seeing hatred being tweeted out daily from, like, the highest offices, where kids are being told their families are coming from expletive countries, and where our kids are facing really very real violence. And that's why I wanted to create this sort of what you call that page-turner element where I follow um, an act of domestic terrorism as it occurs. The reader can see what's happening um, and yet is help, helpless to stop it. And we know it's going to affect Maya's story in some way. And Maya's not ready for it. And, you know, neither in a way are we to try to deal with it. But I was trying to show what can happen when this wave of Islamophobia hits an otherwise kind of tranquil town and how hatred can affect everyone. And all the officials and people in the book are well-meaning and uh, intend the best, but you still get a sense of the vulnerability that she faces in spite of everybody's – her parents get a rock through their uh, death threat, through Mm -hmm. their dentist office. There's a sense that, oh, these people are all very nice. They can't really help us. They can't really protect us. Well, I think what what Maya starts to see is that she's grown up in this small town, and it's kind of a bubble. She has a support system there, her network of friends. and But at the same time, you know, these issues of Islamophobia are much, much larger. And like I said, every town has its flaws, and it's going to have its haters. And, you know, the only way a community can really deal with that is to, to really confront it head on, to have some of these uncomfortable conversations about what it means um, for those kids who are being othered in your community. Because there's, you know, our children are being confronted daily with such terrible things. And as adults, um, really, it's our job to to help, you know, lift them up and, and you know, help them with those struggles. And I think in Maya's community, um, she's really isolated. And that's what makes her feel so vulnerable. And that's what make you know, it, it makes her an easy target. Uh, what kind of reaction have you had to the book? It's, it, it, it hit the New York Times bestseller list for young adults and things. And so people like it. Um, but I imagine people tell you things after reading it. Um, well, you know, I've been really... I mean, I've been overwhelmed um, with um, reader, I mean, in a great way, um, with readers who have been reaching out to me, you know, on social media or emailing me, and um, both children and adults who've said to me, you know, thanks for writing this because um, I was that kid, and maybe they're not the exact same background as Maya, but, you know, I was that kid who felt like I was the only one, like I was alone, like, you know, that where I was confronted with some kind of prejudice or, or, or bigotry, and it just made me feel good to see myself on the page. And so, you know, that in that way, the book has been kind of a mirror for kids. And I, it's been really nice for them to share that with me. But, you know, other people have also said to me, you know, what, what some of these friends said to me, well, I never really imagined your life like that or another kid's life like this. And it really gave me this kind of window into a, another life. And I think when people sort of look through that window and can try, try to, you know, understand the experience of someone who's different than them, they can also see, you know, a part of them reflected back because everyone has had moments of feeling, you know, the kind of anxiety or, or discomfort that some of these characters feel. Um, and so I think it's, it's 
it, it just makes me feel just so great and really hopeful that people can see themselves in the book um, and can also have that sort of that that inroad to another person's experiences. What do you want to do next? Do you want to write more of Maya Aziz's life, or do you want to, to do? There's a rich vein there if you want to um, tap it. Well. So far, Maya's, uh, Maya's experience is just going to be on this book. I do have two other books coming out in, in 2019, which are also young adult fiction, um, but they are stories that are, are very different than Maya's. Um, I have a book coming out in spring 2019 called Internment, which is a speculative fiction set, as I say, 15 minutes into the future that follows um, the first wave of, of Muslims who are put in internment camps in the United States. And um, my third novel is Fall 2019, and that's called Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know, which was actually inspired by my bachelor's thesis. I finally got to, to – Utilize it? To, yes. <laughs> um, uh, and it's a literary mystery where a young woman um, of French and Indian parents goes to Paris for their annual vacation, and there she meets a descendant of Alexander Dumas, a young man. Um, and together they find a reference to a 19th century Muslim woman who was living in Paris, and they find that in a letter – um, written by Delacroix, the painter, to Dumas. And um, they set off on kind of this, you know, this hunt through the ar- the history and the archives of, of old Paris to try to find out who she is. Great. It sounds like you're going to do great stuff. And I really enjoyed reading Love, Hate, and Other Filters. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you, Samira Ahmed. Keep up the great work. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The IOC says this is the first time the Olympic athletes didn't complain about the food. In part, that is because Korean food is, of course, terrific. But Pyeongchang's version of Korean food is particularly terrific, and we're going to talk about it now with Sue Kong. She is an associate professor of hospitality management at Colorado State University, and she wrote about Pyeongchang's heartwarming cuisine in The Conversation. Thanks for joining us, Sue. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Tell us about um, Pyeongchang's, uh, the way it's different than maybe a lot of other South Korean cuisine that people have had. What, what's different? Well, the Gangwon province where the Pyeongchang is located is one of the probably highest mountainous area and then one of the snowiest area in South Korea. And unlike the rest of the country, it has a huge mountain uh, running through the province, making the region very unique. So the rest of the Korea has a lot of rices and vegetables and agriculture items they usually eat. But this part of the country is a little bit different. They really not crazy about the uh, rice, but they eat a lot of potatoes and um, maize, 
uh, bulkweeds and uh, barleys, things like that. So it, it's called the Potato Valley in some people? Potato call it? Valley of the country because everybody uh, in South Korea knows that they are the kind of mecca of the potato of the country, and that's why the name is calling from um, that um, aspect. And the, the, a lot of seafood? I understand it was snow crab season? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is uh, located right next to the uh, east coast of the country. It's a Korea is a peninsula, so they have a west coast and east coast. So right now is a really crab season, uh, king crab, which is very popular in South Korea. A lot of people actually go there to eat that during the winter time. That is like a family outing, uh, food tourism kind of feel that that particular season, um, they attract a lot of people from all of the countries. So really, this is um, the kind of cuisine almost anybody can get behind because everybody loves seafood and everybody loves potatoey, uh, mm-hmm. heartwarming dishes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, uh, unlike the other part of the uh, Korea, Gangwon province, food is very simple. It doesn't have a lot of strong condiments or spices that many people probably do not like. Um, and a lot of people think that it's a very, Korean food is very spicy, but compared to the other part of the Korea, Gangwon province um, food is actually not that spicy. It's actually mild and very healthy. So that I think it has a more appeal to international visitors uh, as well as to Koreans as well. Um, that's the, what kind of stand out the food in the area. What kind of role did the uh, South Korean government have in promoting Korean cuisine? In the last, uh, I would say in the last two decades, they have been really heavy on promoting the Korean uh, cuisine to international market. A lot of Westerners know about the Chinese food and Japanese food very well uh, by simply that they're national branding in the international market, unfortunately, Korean food was not that strong in terms of the brand recognition. Uh, But in the recent years, um, Korean tourism industry is right driven by the cultural trend called it Hanyu, or Korean wave. It's um, starting from the popular media, including the K-pop artists, TV dramas, and then Korean tourism industry really take advantage of it by extend, expanding their horizon to food. And that's why I see nowadays more and more about the talk about the Korean food. There is more export about the Korean food, at least in the North America. Um, I think the government is really behind all popularity. They really want to get the name out there for uh, Korean cuisine. I understand the Olympic Plaza had a K-food dome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard that it was a very, very successful. Um, of course, they have to provide all different food. There was like a 3,000 athletes and from the whole 95 different countries. So they said that there is, they hired 180 chefs. And then menu goes on to the 18 pages uh, covering every part of the selection you can possibly from salad bar to kosher world italian asian korean you just name it and um not only they serve to the um the athletes also they serve to the visitors who never tried the korean food but want to uh, know about it and learn about it so that they provided a whole list of the korean food so that they know about it and so that they can go back to their country and try the different cuisine uh as a new um, learning experience. 
I'm talking with Sue Kang. She is a Associate Professor of Hospitality Management at Colorado State University, and we're talking about her article in the conversation, uh, Pyeongchang's Heartwarming Cuisine. And Korean cuisine, it's pretty versatile. I mean, I understand that um, even something like bulgogi uh, Mm -hmm. in Pyeongchang, they have their own wrinkle on it, and they whip in squid and things like that. Yes, there is a, um, probably more than dozens of the different types of the bulgogi. Uh, same goes with the kimchi. Um, I was told that there is about 200 different types of the kimchi, from non-spicy to very spicy type, from North Korean style to very South Korean style. Uh, same goes with uh, all different meats. Food is a very important part of the Korean culture. I mean, if you visit a Korean household or a friend's house, the first thing they have to do is serve something. So I think the idea and uh, the hospitality spirit coming, they think that it is uh, uh, translated into what kind of food you serve to the visitors and friends and family. So uh, in this sense, yeah, there is a lot of different way of preparing the food um, from just to meet the beef, pork, and chicken. Chicken is also very popular in South Korea to the seafood. And then sometimes we combine both of them together and then people like it. So yes, the Kangwon Island, uh, Kangwon province has uh, their own version of the bulgogi that no other part of the country has. So, um, you know, it seems like the Olympics were really well-received and that uh, that people really enjoyed uh, mm-hmm. being in Guangdong. And I know that the region had aspirations to become a, a larger attraction uh, mm-hmm. for, for winter sports within Asia, outside of Asia. Um, how do you think it did? I think that's a great idea because the the these mega events like Olympic Games uh, are highly mediatized and reach the global audience. And Gangwon Island, Gangwon Province is very popular with a lot of domestic travelers. A lot of people in Seoul go there for uh, during the especially summertime for a beach or during the uh, winter time for skiing. And during the autumn time, they have the beautiful color um, of the leaves changes and everything. Um, but not much with international travelers. So I think they want to using this Olympic as a stepping stone to get more international attention in the tourism aspect. And then I think that's a great thing to do because um, I think they deserve the attention. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, landscape with the large mountains and the sea and valleys. And um, yeah, I think they deserve the, some attention from international tourism market. Did you have a favorite moment from the Olympics yourself, uh, something that kind of rang true to you? <laughs> I have watched here and there, um, but I have to say, like a lot of media publicized the women's calling team from the South Korea. Uh, they are actually called the garlic girls because they are coming from the area where, the, where garlic is very popular in South Korea. So you can see that we call the reason by the food name a lot. Um, and uh, I think that was amazing to see. They have a little training facility, but they just rise from the from nothing to the silver medal. Even they lost to to Sweden, but I think that was amazing to see. I think that they showed the spirit of the Olympic. Well, it was really fun to watch the Olympics in South Korea. And thanks for talking about the cuisine of Pyeongchang and the, the surrounding region. Su Kang is Associate Professor of Hospitality Management at Colorado State University. And her article in the conversation is Pyeongchang's Heartwarming Cuisine. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me today. 
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our World History Minute with historian John Schmidt. John's the author of On This Day in Chicago History, but we make him work a global beat here on Worldview. And today we're going to spin back the clock for a important technological development, maybe the most important technological development ever, in my opinion. Yeah, well, today's world history moment is very important. February 26, 1935, is the development of radio detection and ranging, or as we call it, radar. Well, radio waves were first discovered in the 19th century, and over the next several decades, they were brought into use for communication and were later used for commercial broadcasting. And in 1934, there were rumors that Nazi Germany was developing a new weapon, a death ray using radio waves. Supposedly, Nikola Tesla was involved in it, so I don't think he was working for the Nazis, though. Anyway, this rumor was out. And the British government was skeptical, but they thought they better get to work on something like this death ray, and they gave the job to a man named Robert Watson Watt. Now, Watson Watt had already been tracking down storms using radio waves, and he didn't think that radio waves could be used for a death ray. The energy needed for something like that would be enormous, but the radio waves might be used to track an aircraft in flight. And the concept was simple. You sent out a radio wave, wave hit an object, and then the wave bounced back. Then you could calculate the location of the object. Somebody said it was like playing a caram shot in billiards. Well, Watson Watt and his team went to work on the idea. And early in 1935, he outlined a plan for a detection of aircraft device in a message to the British government's air ministry. And the demonstration was arranged for ministry officials February 26, 1935. Well, the British broadcasting system had a transmitter in a town of Daventry. And Watson Watt had a receiver set up in a field eight miles away. Then airplane took off, flew over the transmitter. Sure enough, radio signal bounced off the plane and was picked up by the receiver. So they flew the plane over a couple more times. Each time the receiver picked up the signal, it worked. The Daventry experiment convinced the air ministry. They immediately authorized the development of a radar program. And in 1937, they set up their first station on the southeast coast of Britain, and other stations soon followed. And meanwhile, work went on to increase the range of reception. Well, World War II began in 1939. By then, Britain had a chain of 19 radar stations. And they could track planes approaching from 200 miles away. Of course, that gave Britain's Royal Air Force a decided advantage over their German counterparts. And radar did prove a decisive factor in turning the tide of the war. In 2014, a feature film about Robert Watson Watt and radar was released. The name of the film was Castles in the Sky. And today, of course, radar continues to have many practical applications in modern life including nabbing motorists with a heavy foot. Yep, radar does it all. Gets the motorists and the airplanes and everything else. And you're right, it protects us. It's a wonderful invention. Wonderful. And it broadcasts this radio station every day. There's nothing wrong with radio waves. Hear that, everybody out there? John Schmidt, our World History Minute. Thanks a lot. Okay.
Well, did you ever think about straws? We only use them once, and then we throw them away. If everybody is doing this, uh, what are we creating? Well, in this country, we are throwing away 500 million straws every day. And we're going to talk tomorrow with Linda Booker. She's director of a documentary film, Straws, running at the One Earth Film Festival, which starts this week. Hope you can join us for Worldview tomorrow. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. Thanks to Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.